Thank you for supporting our mission to expose the truth wherever it leads by listening to Luna Shark Podcast, Cup of Justice, and True Sunlight. I get messages all the time from people asking how they can help us with our mission. And now there is a great way to do that. If you want to go the extra step, we invite you to learn more about Luna Shark Plus for ad-free listening on Apple Podcasts, or even better, join Luna Shark Premium, a membership community for all Luna Shark content powered by Supercast. Join Luna Shark Premium at lunasharkmedia.com slash membership. And I am so excited for the next bit. Are you ready for it? Our higher Soak Up the Sun members will soon get access to playlists, audio, and videos that match chapters in my new book, Blood on Their Hands, which releases November 14th. Visit lunasharkmedia.com slash membership to learn the best way you can stay tuned, stay pesky, and stay in the sunlight. Hello, this is an Amtel operator calling from Alvin S. Glenn Detention Center with a prepaid collect call from Alec. To accept this prepaid collect call, press 1. All phone calls are subject to monitoring and recording. Thank you for using Amtel. I don't know if we will ever have answers to all of the unsolved deaths allegedly tied to the Murdoch family. But after listening and re-listening to hours upon hours of jailhouse phone call tapes, I think we have a better understanding of how Ellick's family sees this tangled web playing out in the media and a clearer picture of how Ellick has manipulated those close to him for years. My name is Mandy Matney. I have been investigating the Murdoch family for more than three years now. This is the Murdoch Murders Podcast with David Moses and Liz Farrell. Wow. So the last few weeks have been a whirlwind. I feel like I've been in a fever dream since we got the phone calls a few weeks ago. So I'm starting off today by saying that the MMP team is finally taking a real vacation, and we will not have a podcast next week. I've said this before, and I'll say it again, it's really important to take breaks and vacations and step away from this stuff that can be so heavy and overbearing and downright depressing at times. And I promise we will be back the second week of July, re-energized and ready to take on the good old boys again. I know Liz, David, and I have all hit walls in the last few weeks, and I hope you all understand that we need the break. But in the meantime, please check out our new YouTube channel. Our team has been working hard going through old episodes, adding visualizations, photos, and graphics to each episode, and it's really a whole different way of experiencing the show. Also, be sure to follow Murdoch Murders Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. We will continue to post while we're gone. Hey guys, this is Liz. Before we get into the episode, I want to first update you on the shocking news we got late Tuesday morning when Mandy and David were on their way to their vacation. Alec Murdoch now officially stands accused of dealing drugs. On June 23rd, the state grand jury indicted Alec on two new counts, one charge of criminal conspiracy and one count of manufacturing, distributing, or possessing oxycodone. 
We've been reporting on Alec's alleged connections to drug trafficking for the better part of the past year at Fitz News and here on the podcast. But it was still surprising to see it in black and white. This definitely furthers our suspicion into Alec's claim that he has had an addiction to oxycodone for more than 20 years. It's hard to imagine that someone accused of dealing this highly destructive drug from 2013 through September 2021 would be able to come out on the other end of it without anyone in his life having noticed his addiction. Also on Tuesday, we found out why Curtis Eddie Smith was arrested Friday evening. The circumstances of his arrest were a mystery until 40 minutes before his bond hearing at noon Tuesday. The indictment implicating both him and Alec wasn't sealed until then. We were really concerned about this because of how differently Eddie's case was being handled from Corey Fleming's and Russell Lafitte's. Eddie was arrested at his home, meaning the cops went and got him. But Corey and Russell were both able to turn themselves in seemingly when it was convenient for them. They both knew what was in their indictments in advance of their bond hearings. Meanwhile, as of Monday evening, Eddie's attorney still hadn't been given the unsealed indictment. It's hard to compare the cases because they're so different, but There are noticeable differences in how the person with the least amount of power and resources in all of this, who isn't accused of stealing millions from people, is being treated compared to those with significant power and resources. So the indictment is interesting and offers a few new details about the checks Eddie was allegedly cashing for Alec. First, there were at least 437 checks cashed over an eight-year period. 437. The checks were almost always for less than $10,000. But starting in 2021, the amounts and frequencies of the checks increased by a lot. So far, Eddie is accused of laundering more than $2.4 million for Alec. He's also accused of engaging in a criminal conspiracy with him and charged with forging his daughter's and girlfriend's names on these checks. Eddie also faces new drug charges in this indictment. At the hearing Tuesday, he seemed really restless and he told the judge that he didn't have any money, that all that cash, quote, went to Alec Murdoch. His lawyer advocated for a personal recognizance bond, but Judge Newman decided to set his bond at $250,000. If Eddie posts bond, he'll be required to wear an ankle monitor and get drug tested. Sources are telling us that this latest charge is one that's going to send shockwaves throughout the state because a lot of, quote, big names in politics and in the legal community could be implicated in Ellick's alleged drug dealing. We'll be looking into this more after a much needed break. And speaking of needing a break, I want to be honest about something. We missed a few things in the jailhouse phone calls, and I will take responsibility for that. I say all of this because I'm sure we will play some of these calls on this episode, which is the third episode on this round of phone calls, and y'all will probably think, why wasn't this the first thing you reported on while listening to the phone calls? Well, as we've said, there was over 100 phone calls to listen to and over 13 hours of content in the CD-ROMs we received. In the first episode, we played various clips from those calls to give you all an idea of what we were working with, but a majority of those calls were very boring and very painful to listen to and without news value. I completely underestimated how mentally draining just the act of listening to these phone calls would be. It's impossible to not feel for Ellick's family members who are clearly being manipulated by him. And finding nuggets and news between the exhausting talk of exercise, life in jail, and canteens, it's tedious and draining and really takes a lot of time. But while dividing up the calls, one apparently slipped through the cracks, which makes sense considering we have a small team and we are working tirelessly trying to crank out stories and podcasts about the bits of newsworthy information in the phone calls. 
Before I play this particular call we missed, I want you to hear this clip from January 11th. Now remember, on January 10th, Ellick had a bond hearing where prosecutor Creighton Waters made it a point to say that they listened to Ellick's jailhouse phone calls and it was clear that he had access to his assets. Buster clearly took notice of this. Um, but moving forward, I think that these conversations on this phone should be nothing more than surface level. And if you have something of, you know, um... You talking about that stuff they were saying at the hearing yesterday? Yeah. I mean, I'll be honest with you. I'm, every single phone call I get on, I know they're listening to it. I mean, Well, we just, I just thought, I just kind of thought it was more something that was said and wouldn't exactly be utilized, but I can see that I was wrong. So if there's something of substance you want to talk to me about, just write me a letter and I'll write it back. Well, I mean, all of that stuff is really just taking snippets and making it, you know, I mean, that's just advocating as lawyers, which... I understand that, but not very much of my life is private. The more I can keep private, the more I would like to. I understand that totally, for sure. Like we've said before, this story requires constant conversation about how to cover it because we know that everything we report on has very specific and personal impacts. Buster Murdoch is one of those people greatly affected, obviously. And every time we write about him or talk about him, we consider the news value in doing so. So hearing that last call was really difficult for a couple of reasons. One is obviously knowing the role we are playing in broadcasting his father's jailhouse calls. And real quick, I just wanted to throw a little timeline note in here. This conversation occurred before we FOIA'd for the calls about a week later. This means Buster was observant enough and wise enough to know that there are consequences to what they had been discussing. The second reason is that we understand that Alex's alleged crimes are not Buster's alleged crimes, but he is inextricably linked to how Alex has been behaving behind bars, which is where our interest lies, especially as we work to nudge this state and the 14th Circuit toward a much-needed reckoning. Buster appears to have been playing a role in hiding the family's assets. He also sought to benefit from a special backroom deal that would have allowed him to return to law school, the law school he got kicked out of allegedly because of plagiarism. And not just return to law school, but return on his terms. This is in part why we continue to stand by the decision to publish and write about these calls. They give us a look at how someone like Alec Murdoch regards the system, how he thinks, and how he acts. Buster is at a fork in the road. If he bears left, he will continue on Murdoch Boulevard. If he bears right, he has the opportunity to create a new legacy for the family, one that doesn't wholly depend on the system they corrupted for their own benefit. We thought this clip was important because it seems like Alec made a lot less phone calls from this point forward. But this also could be because the jail had more COVID lockdowns during this period, which Alec does discuss. But for this particular phone call on January 17th, so less than a week after the don't talk about things of substance chat, Alec and Buster were very much aware that their phone calls were being listened to by the AG's office. After chatting about Buster's weekend, Alec mentions that he's caught a glimpse of the 2020 episode, The Fall of the House of Murdoch, which aired on January 14th, 2022. 
what was on TV Friday, bus? I, I saw Jim Marvin on there for just a second. Yeah, it was some. It was something ABC 2020. I didn't watch it. Well, did, did it, was it a new interview or was it from that old interview? Um, I'll assume if it had him on TV, it had to be the old one. He has not gone on TV since. He hasn't. Ten four. Ten four. All right. Well, I mean, did they? Was it the same old stuff with a bunch of innuendo and false stuff, or were they being semi-truthful? Dad, I, but I'd love to be able to give you some insight, but I, I didn't watch it and I didn't seek out anything, any transcripts from it. I, I, I don't know. I know, um. It ain't no big deal. I would assume it's the same old thing. Brooklyn told me some stuff that was on it and it, it, it was stuff that's, that's, that's wrong. So, I mean, it's just that same old, um. Stephen Smith and Glory and all that bullshit. Um, you know, I think it probably had to touch on that. I think this is, I think this, I think this one hit maybe a little bit more on the boat wreck. Um, I just know that there was some stuff that they, that Brooklyn said that, that was said in, in the, um, in the little show and it's just stuff that, it's just stuff that's not important, but it just shows that if they believe, if they are willing to state that in fact, that they, they just don't know what they're saying because it's, just stuff that's not true. Okay, so this is the only conversation we have listened to that brings up Gloria's and Stephen's deaths. Again, this is after Ellick became imminently aware that not only were the calls being reviewed by the Attorney General's office, the content of the calls could be used against him. It's hard to know why Ellick wanted to discuss this with Buster, not even a week after Buster was like, surface stuff only, please. But part of me suspects that he's decided he could use this phone power to help his case. So maybe in the moment he thought it would be a good idea for law enforcement to hear this conversation and that maybe they'd be like, hey guys, guys, Alec is saying there's nothing to the Gloria and Stephen Smith cases. Crazy that we thought things weren't adding up there. At any rate, it is surreal hearing him say their names, especially with such disdain. I understand. So are they still trying to say out there like there's some mystery surrounding Gloria's death about how she died saying what now about how she died are they still trying to make some innuendo there um about gloria yeah i don't know i um also with gloria who was the woman who raised Alex's sons by the way he is absolutely minimizing the harm that was done to her and her family and logically, there is a lot of mystery surrounding her death. Think about it. No one saw her trip over the dogs. Alec is the only one who allegedly heard her say that she tripped over the dogs, even though she was in and out of consciousness at the time. There are several inconsistencies in the details surrounding her death. Enough inconsistencies to prompt a new investigation from SLED into her death and the exhumation of her body. And don't forget, Alec admittedly stole millions of dollars from her death settlement. So yes, that's a mystery. And anyone who ever cared about Gloria would want those questions to be answered for the sake of her family. But it's clear that Buster isn't paying attention to details here. And again, I can't imagine how hard this must be on him, especially on top of grieving the loss of his mother and brother. But Alec doesn't accept that Buster is trying to stay out of this. He keeps pressing. 
Or they still uh, what do you think about Stephen Smith, even though Andy Savage? Yeah, I mean, I don't think anybody... connected to us? Yeah, I don't think anybody took Did the heart of Andy Savage. Did Slayer ever come out and say there's no connection? No, they, they, they were never... Even though told Andy Savage that? Uh, no, Slayer has not released anything. Ah, uh, Andy Savage. If you'll remember... Andy Savage was Sandy Smith's attorney until Sandy fired him last fall after he told a reporter that the Murdochs weren't connected to the Stephen Smith case before talking to Sandy. There still haven't been any arrests, and we still don't know what happened to Stephen. But here, it sounds like Ellick was astonished that what Andy Savage told the press didn't work. That it didn't solve the issue of people logically making the jump that the Murdochs whose names are all over the case file, might have had something to do with Steven's case. I'm not sure if you caught this part, but Buster said back to him, yeah, I don't think anybody took to heart what Andy Savage was saying. Andy Savage is a really well-known, expensive, high-profile, highly connected defense attorney in Charleston. We still have a lot of questions about whose interests ended up being served best during his time representing Sandy, especially when a key component of his agreement with her seemed to be that she not publicly comment on the case at a time when she should have been encouraged to put Steven's name in the headlines every day. Okay, so that all was said. And then, for the only time in all of these phone calls, Buster brings up the double homicide investigation. They wouldn't even, they didn't even release a statement about what was this most recent thing. Um, there was something, so, something came out not long ago talking about how there's been like a, a breakthrough in evidence to do with like the homicides and, and Sled wouldn't even come out and issue a statement saying that there, there has been no further evidence like gathered. Ten four. Um Ten four. so personally I would not count on Sled to to help in any way. So here, Buster is referring to our reporting on this podcast and on Fitz News that published back in January about physical evidence linking Ellick to the double homicide, according to our sources. I was always curious if Ellick's family would at all change their behavior toward him after hearing about this evidence. And it seems like from the calls, they didn't change at all, which shows that they're willing to accept Ellick's narrative, whether this is because they actually believe it, or they want to believe it, or they need to believe him for their own sanity, I don't know. Based on listening to hours of these phone calls, we think Ellick is definitely painting himself as a guy who made some mistakes, and that Sled and the AG's office are setting him up and making an example out of him because they feel pressure to do so by the media. We'll talk about those comments a little bit later. But I also want to point out one more thing. Buster commenting about Sled, saying I would not count on Sled to help in any way. It's telling because their reputation up until this past year is that they could rely on law enforcement to help them in several ways. This is an entirely new reality for them. But more telling is Ellick's reaction to that statement. He doesn't ask any follow-up questions like, what evidence? Or, I don't understand how they haven't arrested anyone in your brother and mother's murders. Instead, he quickly changes the subject. I was just curious. All right, my man, you get some rest, and now, what time do you get on the road tomorrow? Um, about 8, about 8 a.m. Uh, I'll give you a call sometime when I can. 
Buster, what's going on with COVID out there? It must be going crazy. It's um, it's this new, it's this new variant. Um, it's, um, it's Omni COVID or whatever. Omicron. It's Omicron. Um, that's it. Omicron. Omicron. Whatever. Yeah. And we'll be right back. Thank you for supporting our mission to expose the truth wherever it leads by listening to Luna Shark Podcast's Cup of Justice in True Sunlight. I get messages all the time from people asking how they can help us with our mission. And now there is a great way to do that. If you want to go the extra step, we invite you to learn more about Luna Shark Plus for ad-free listening on Apple Podcasts or even better, join Luna Shark Premium, a membership community for all Luna Shark content powered by Supercast. Join Luna Shark Premium at lunasharkmedia.com slash membership. And I am so excited for the next bit. Are you ready for it? Our higher Soak Up the Sun members will soon get access to playlists, audio, and videos that match chapters in my new book, Blood on Their Hands, which releases November 14th. Visit lunasharkmedia.com slash membership to learn the best way you can stay tuned, stay pesky, and stay in the sunlight. Ever since Richland County released the latest batch of jailhouse phone calls, a lot of you have sent me messages asking the same thing. Does he ever mention the investigation into the murders of his wife and son? Aside from the phone call that we just played where Buster mentions my reporting on the physical evidence linking Ellick to the double homicide, which they both completely brushed off, there was no mention of the actual status of the investigation. Nor did Ellick ever mention a concern for Buster's safety or the safety of his family members. However, and we have to consider this, we were not given about half of the phone calls that Ellick placed during this time period. From October through December, more than a third of the phone calls we requested were held back by Richland County. We're not sure yet what was held back from this latest batch, but should know soon. Some of these calls Ellick had with his attorney, but others were with family members. According to the county, the family calls were held back because they contained personal information and the county had no way to redact those parts. So they held back the whole call, which is not the way the FOIA law is intended to work, so we will be looking into that more. One thing we learned from this latest batch of calls is that Ellick clearly loves a three-way call and thinks nothing of ordering one up whenever he feels like it, which again is against the jail's rules. We've definitely detected in several phone calls references to conversations we haven't heard, and we get the sense that Ellick might be using his Jim Griffin calls and meetings as a shield for his more controversial conversations. There were some roundabout mentions of Maggie and Paul in the murders at Moselle. In this call on October 30th, Ellick suggests that Buster go hunting at Moselle, the property where his mother and brother were murdered just a few months before this phone call. Y'all hunting? Uh, we're going to this afternoon. Let me tell you what you ought to do, Buster. I think the damn um, theaters were full over there at Moselle, if you felt like going back there, I bet with nothing going on, I bet there's deer all over them things. No, I mean, back. Huh? What's that going to do for me? What's that going to do for me? Kill a deer? I'm not going hunting out there. And here, Buster is like, no, Dad, that's weird. And his dad is saying, okay, but, and he keeps pressing him. I'm just letting you know. I'm Buster. Also, I wanted to tell you this. I just remember this. You know, they replanted those sunflowers. Do you have any interest in hunting that field? No. Do you care if um, 
If I let Jim do it? No. You sure? Yes. All right, you want me to come to call you if we hunt? Well, I, I should be out by then. Jim, Jim who? Jim Griffin. What, let him hunt deer out there, or what are you talking about? No, I'm talking about, I didn't know if you wanted to hunt ducks out there. If you do, then I want you to do it. If not, then I'm going to let him do it. He knows how to facilitate a dove hunt? What? I said he knows how to facilitate a dove hunt? Well, I mean, you know, I don't think it would be, I hadn't really, I don't know. Do you just, do you want a dove hunt out there? No. Not at all. But what was even weirder was what Alex suggested to Buster around Christmas time. In this December 9th, 2021 phone call, Buster told his father that he was almost done with his Christmas shopping, and Alex made a strange suggestion. Yeah, having a good day. I've been spending so much money on it, and it hurts me. On what? People's Christmas presents. Uh, well... I mean, I gotta buy a present for everybody. Well, it's a lot of people. I'll tell you this, Bus. What? Pam. Hello. Something that was mom or Paul's. And I think people really like that. Well, I mean, I I wasn't gonna do. I wasn't gonna do that. We'll see if I if I get out of here, which, like I say, I'm not optimistic. But um, we'll see. We'll see. They seem to be optimistic, but they were optimistic the first time too. Right. Anyway. Well, I mean, I've already I've already bought everybody something, so. Well, we'll talk about finances when I get out of here, but I'm gonna make sure you're okay. Well, I mean, I, I make money. I know. And if I don't if I don't go back in the spring, then I'll continue to make more effectively. I know. Talking about anyway, we'll 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 we'll, we'll get all that square. Talk to you when we're not on this phone being recorded. Okay. Um, All right, everything else is good? So there have been a few times while listening to these phone calls where Alex's behavior has left us speechless. This was one of them. And then this call, which was around the same time, when they talked about Maggie's belongings and the mysterious Blanca, who comes up a lot, came up again. Did you talk to Blanca? Um... No, I haven't okay. talked to him. All right. What, you, I, what, what am I supposed to tell her again? Just tell her that I want to that that I want to give her a call and and explain to her what she has to do and if that's okay with her. What is? Uh, yeah, with the account. Yeah, and will you do that today? I'd like to call her over the holidays. Yeah, I'll do that today, man. Me and Blanca and been rubbing on the same cylinder. What? I said me and Blanca. I've got some serious problems the way Blanca's done some things. Like what? You know, man, I went out to Moselle the other day. She didn't tell anybody. I mean, she's packed up everything at Moselle. I don't know where anything is, so I can't find anything that I want. You know, and, and she doesn't, you know, she calls Grandma and looks for permission to go out there and take Mom's clothes with her and stuff like that. And I was like, you know what, Grandma, you need to tell her. She needs to call me. Yeah, she's just trying to help, though, remember that. But just tell her. I mean, tell Blanca to call you. She's just trying to help. Here again is the mysterious Blanca, who we believe is the assistant for Russell Lafitte, 
the former CEO of Palmetto State Bank. We do not at all blame Buster for having a problem here, because at some point in the weeks after this call, Blanca put several items of Maggie's clothing on sale on Poshmark. And these were not Maggie's back-of-the-closet clothes in Blanca's closet either. These were items of clothing that the people in her life remember well and closely associate with her, such as a $260 quilted jacket Maggie wore often that Blanca sold for $60, and a pair of $500 Golden Goose sneakers that she sold for $200. Alex says Blanca just wanted to help and maybe that is the case, but it's an incredibly strange thing to go online and sell items of clothing that belong to one of the victims in one of the nation's most talked about and still unsolved murder cases. Like with everything else in Alec Murdoch's realm, there are so many questions here. Was Blanca authorized by the Murdoch family to do this? If so, did she keep the money for herself? Does this have anything to do with a mysterious account Blanca was setting up that is referenced in Call with Buster? Did Alec tell her to sell the clothes as a way of circumventing the receivership? I have to say, in a case that features several horrifying and inhumane details, this sale of Maggie's clothing ranks pretty high. Blanca is selling the clothes of a murdered mom, potentially as a way to help the only publicly named person of interest in her death. Why not sell Alec's clothing? We highly doubt he's going to need them again. Now, another bizarre thing we learned in these latest calls is how obsessed Alec seems with getting Buster to connect him with Maggie's parents. Terry and Kennedy Branstetter, whom Alec refers to repeatedly as Grandma and Papa T. Not only does he pester Buster about whether Buster thinks they would be okay with talking to Alec, he continues to nag him about getting an inmate calling card set up for them, without ever being told, to our knowledge, that yes, in fact, they would like to speak with him. There are a few times in the calls when Alec gets emotional about Maggie and Paul, which he should be, and they do seem like genuine moments of grief, to the point he is unable to talk. But there's also a very performative nature to the grief, and this isn't a characterization. More than a dozen times during these calls, Alec asked Liz Murdoch and Lynn Murdoch, or asked Buster to ask Liz Murdoch, to place flowers at the still unmarked gravesites of Maggie and Paul, which is really nice. Super appropriate, very thoughtful, and emotional, especially around some of the holiday calls. Except, every time Alec asked for that to be done, he also wanted something else from it. We'll share a few of those phone calls with you. Here's one from December 19th. Hey, did you remember to ask Liz did he get flowers? You never, you never told me anything like that. Yeah, I did the other night. Did you get flowers? Right. It doesn't matter. Will you ask her right now? To do what? Get flowers. For what? For what? Think, bus. For Mom and Paul. Okay, I mean, buddy, I mean, Gene, this is the first time I'm hearing of this. I know, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, I'll tell her. Will you tell her right now? Yeah, it was, what do you want me to tell her? To get flowers? Sit over there? Yeah. All right, I just told her. Thank you so much. She said she'd do it? Yeah. Good. Is Brooklyn with you, too? And, and, and Liz said she'd put them out? Yes. All right, and, and um, will you ask her if she'll let Grandma and Marion know she put them out? Yes. You do that right now before you forget? Yeah, I'm going to do it as soon as we get off the phone. Almost every request for flowers ends with a request to make sure Maggie's mom and dad and sister Marion know that he made this happen. Here's a call from November 24th with Liz Murdoch. Um, will you do me a favor? Will you make sure 
that grandma and Mary know you're putting out flowers so they won't worry about it? Mm-hmm. From December 22nd. And um, and all that stuff was taken care of with the flowers and uh, the grave sites, so just a heads up on that. Are you there? Hello? I'm here. So all that's been done. Um, I think Lynn did it. All right. So did they tell Grandma? Uh, yes. I believe that, I, I believe, I believe Liz did. I asked her to, and I think she did. And December 23rd. Sorry to bug you back real quick. Hey, boss. What? It's very important for me for you to let Grandma and Papa T, Mary and Bart, all the proctors know that it worries me to death how much I know this has made it hard on them, like I've told on you, too. You know, make sure they know that I worry about them. Okay. Will you do that? Yes. And make sure Mary knows we put flowers out. She already knows. There are a couple of things sources have told us about Alec's relationship with Maggie's family. They weren't especially tight, though Maggie was fully immersed in the world of Murdoch. Alec was only a sometimes participant in his in-laws' lives. We've been told that Alec seemed jealous of Maggie's brother-in-law, who is very successful and wealthy. After the murders, it struck several people who knew Maggie and Alec as peculiar that Alec would spend so much time with his in-laws. Maybe he did it for Buster. Maybe it was to get away from home. Some have suggested that it was a way for Alec to monitor what Maggie's family knew about the situation and to monitor what they might tell law enforcement. Though we have no doubt that his grief is real, Alec's seeming obsession with the Brandstetters knowing about his act of kindness seems like another one of his manipulations, like he was priming Maggie's parents to be on his side. Oh, and another thing we noticed. Around the time of Alec's first bond reduction hearing, when his lawyers were trying to argue that he deserved a lower bond, Alec started asking about reaching out to Paul's friends. A lot. 10-4. Um, I was getting ready to ask you something. Buster. Yeah. I know I put a lot on you, and I don't, I don't want to keep adding stuff to you, but... What? I, I want to get somebody to reach out to a couple of Paul's friends. Okay. Who would you like to reach out to? Do you want to do that, or you want me to get somebody else to? I mean, I can do it. I, um, you just tell me who. I talked to Will Levin the other day. What's he up to? Uh, nothing, man. He just, he just called and said he was checking in. We talked for a minute. That was good. I'll let you know. I'll give you, what? Who are the people you want me to talk to? I'll, I'll, I'll get you a list. I'll let you know. Why don't, uh, why don't you just write me another letter and, and put the people in that? Unless writing letters are too too difficult to get sent out. Well, um, I'll let you know. Either I'll either do that or I'll let you know here where you have a when you have time and have a pen to write it down. But okay. I don't want to bother you with it if you aren't gonna have time to do it. Like, and I'm not fussing at you, but like. It was important to me to let Lynn and Randy know, and they told me you didn't call them or text them. And I know you don't have time. You just got to let me know when you don't have time to do something I ask you to do. Okay. I mean, it's, it's not a matter of time. I just, you know, just forget sometimes. Well, and I understand that, too. I definitely do. So, I mean, don't don't let it worry you. Know, you know how much you've done. When we watched Alec's December bond hearing, Mandy and I both felt pretty strongly that Alec was using his statement to send messages to people on the outside that he still had their backs. Alec mentioned Corey Fleming and Chris Wilson, 
in an effort to vouch for their innocence in his alleged schemes. Corey, as you know, has since been indicted for his alleged role in stealing money from Ellick's clients. And Chris Wilson has been working hard in the media to separate himself from Ellick. Interesting to note, by the way, that Ellick did not mention Russell Lafitte's name to the judge during his statement. Remember when we reported in episode 37 that prior to his October arrest on the Satterfield charges, Ellick had texted Corey from rehab to really guilt-trippy texts, neither of which offered an apology. Three days after his first round of indictments in November, which included more serious Satterfield charges, Ellick wrote to Corey from jail, apologizing and lamenting all the harm he had caused Corey and his family. He also told Corey to let him know whether he could help him in any way at all. Why did he do this? Maybe he's just that kind of nice guy. Or maybe he knew he was going to have to fight harder than ever to get out on bond and needed all the support he could get from the outside. We think there's a reason for everything Alec does or doesn't do. As it relates to this last phone call, we remember thinking it was really strange that during that same courtroom statement, Alec made it a point to mention Paul's friends and tell the judge how he was afraid his detention was, quote, alienating them. We know that the Murdochs were generally close to their son's friends. Many of their friends called Alec Big Red. But the word alienating is a peculiar one to use in this scenario. Why would his detention be alienating to the friends of his deceased son? Are they depending on him for something he can no longer provide because of his detention? Or do they know certain things about the Murdoch family, and now that Alec is behind bars, he can't quite manage keeping the door shut on that dark library of knowledge? We obviously don't know the answers, but these are questions worth asking. Why is it so important for Alec to maintain a relationship with his son's friends? Maybe this has to do with his grief. Maybe it's his loneliness in jail. Maybe he wants more pen pals or people to ask favors of. Or maybe it's about good old-fashioned control. Another thing about that statement Alex gave in his December bond hearing, it seems like he really wanted the public to hear it. Buster, what kind of, what all media was out there about this last bond hearing? Um, Dad, I hate to tell you, but I've, um, I've blocked all the outlets that produce articles about this stuff because I just got tired of seeing it, so I don't see it a whole lot anymore. So I, 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 I don't, don't know. I don't blame you. I was um, just curious if, you know, they asked me to say something, Judge Lee, I was curious if they printed any of that or they just didn't, you don't know. Um, yeah, I mean, they had very, very little excerpts about it, but, I mean, it was like two, three sentences. It just mentioned that you spoke about me, and I think that you mentioned... Hang on. That you and that what you, else? I think the exact quote that circulated was the part where you're talking about, you know, that you know you apologized and want to be able to, you know, get released and to, you know, start to mend things and, you know, kind of that little portion of it. It was very very brief. Talking about like the love and support that you get and then people went off on tangents talking about, you know, none of his family's ever at the bond hearings, like he's clearly got no love and support, don't know what the hell he's talking about. Simple stuff like that. Uh, I need people to talk shit. Um but you know, I, I I I'm way past worrying about what people that don't matter Say. You know, there's so many people now yeah. shit that they don't have a freaking clue. Well, it's easier for you. You don't run into these people in public. Which people? 
any people that has a negative outlook on this thing. But do you know who they are? We have noticed a recurring theme after listening to hours and hours of Ellick's conversations, and that's on top of years of reporting on this family. The word narcissist comes up a lot when people describe what is going on with Alec Murdoch. The Mayo Clinic describes narcissistic personality disorder as a mental condition of persons who, quote, have an inflated sense of their own importance, a deep need for excessive attention and admiration, troubled relationships, and a lack of empathy for others. According to the Mayo Clinic, people with narcissistic personality disorder have, quote, an exaggerated sense of self-importance. They believe they are, quote, superior and can only associate with equally special people. They expect, quote, special favors and unquestioning compliance with their expectations. And they take advantage of others to, quote, get what they want. Multiple studies have found that a common defense among narcissists is victim mentality or blame shifting. It is apparent in these phone calls that Ellick has a victim mentality and uses it as a primary manipulation tactic to maintain control over his family members. Like in this November 23rd phone call, days after he was indicted on 27 charges for allegedly stealing millions of dollars from several clients, including the Satterfield family and an injured law enforcement officer, Ellick is very clear with Buster about how he should be feeling about this. Jim and them told me they, the grand jury, indicted a bunch more things on last Friday, but you know that's just overkill, right? Yeah, I mean, I... I, I mean, they're just trying to pile it on me now. You know that, right? Yeah, I'm aware. But I can take it. So don't let it worry you. He wants his son to feel bad for him, and he wants his son to believe that the system is making an example of him. He does this with John Marvin, too. Uh, any, any news or anything, you know, they told me about the, the, the new indictments. But I think all that was to be expected. Yeah, they told me about that. I mean, truthfully, they, that, I mean, I understand what they're doing and I get it. But, I mean, you know, they just, he's, he's, um, you know, he's making... They're just stashing it on. He's making as yeah. many charges as he can to say he ain't taking it easy on me. So, That's right. But it is what it is. It's important to note that Ellick's family members do not push back when he attempts to elicit sympathy. They just comply and follow his script. After his December bond hearing, there were multiple calls in which Ellick joked with family members about paying his $7 million bond, another kick he was on. He suddenly became an expert on how unfairly he was being treated in the grand scheme of the nation's worst white-collar criminals. Joss. Jeff Marvin got my bond posted yet? Yeah. <laughs> I think, he's, I think he's writing a check tomorrow. That's a fucking joke, isn't it? Well, yeah, I, don't, I just don't know how they. I don't know. I don't know what goes under that. <laughs> Bernie Madoff had a ten million dollar bond. He took ten billion dollars. That dude from Sun Gold that sold three hundred and eighty. Million dollars. I know. Twenty-four hundred investors. Hundred thousand uh, dollars. Yeah. That lawyer that stole money from clients with 
he told them if he didn't, they didn't turn over their retirement system, their retirement monies to him, they were going to lose it and took it. $100,000 bond. $6.5 million. Anyway, it is what it is. Are you okay? In fact, he compared himself to Bernie Madoff several times. What's that? You got my bond posted yet? Yeah, I'm writing him a check as we speak. Huh? And that's some shit. That's crazy, bud. Fucking Bernie Madoff got a $10 million loan. Yeah, man, I'm just crazy. The home gold, you, did, did Buster tell you? No. The home gold guy that stole $340 million? 2,800 oh. 2, clients? No, I, I hadn't heard. 100,000. The lawyer in Lexington stole six and a half million from people from their retirement accounts. Not not money he made in cases. I'm not saying there's any big difference, but there's a little bit of difference. Hundred thousand dollars. Right. Boy, I hadn't. That, that's crazy. Yeah. Anyway, that ain't what I'm calling about. Did you did? Um, I asked Buster to text Jim, and he said you did. So this is another moment during the phone calls that really struck me as especially significant because it gives such insight into how Alec thinks about what he allegedly did to his clients. He's literally putting himself in a different category, a better category from these other bad guys because the thing he is accused of is not taking money that his clients already had, but rather money that he had acquired for them. We definitely theorized for a while that this was how he was able to justify his actions to himself and maybe others. Because of his family name, the work his forefathers and their law partners did to secure the loyalty of Hampton County judges and juries, and because of the family's connections and power and the litany of favors they collected over the years, Alec was able to win his clients these settlements that were far larger than they would have gotten somewhere else, like lottery winnings. To his mind, it seems, some of that money going back to the house, meaning to him, maybe wasn't stealing so much as it was secretly taking back some of what he felt was owed to him for loaning his family name to a case. Think of it this way. The Murdoch family, over generations, created an industry. And at the heart of that industry, there was a very effective judicial machine that they built and continued to pass on to their sons. Bernie Madoff is just a guy who outright stole from people. Totally different from Big Red. We'll be right back. Ah, Bernie Madoff, a textbook narcissist who Alec loves comparing himself to. But one more thing you need to know about narcissists. They often get angry when things don't go their way. And all of us agreed, after listening to hours and hours of these phone calls, anger isn't really a feeling we sense from Alec throughout a majority of these conversations. But in this December 22nd conversation with Liz Murdoch, I hear some anger and resentment in his voice when he's talking about media coverage of the case. And, and I really could give a flying shit less what anybody who doesn't know me or us says, but it, 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 it you know, I quit listening to it when they started printing all that false shit about the boat wreck or, you know, yeah. hand-picking what they print, only printing negative stuff without putting it in context with other stuff that, you know, 
taking a snippet that when you look at it in its totality, there's nothing to it. But if you take a little blurb, you know, it sounds bad in the media. I mean, they did that right. all the time. But anyway, it, the only thing that worries me about it is, you know, I know it's hard for y'all, you know, and I know it's hard for Grandma and Papa T and yeah. me and Bart. And, and, and it worries me a little bit for Buster. Just, I'm not sure he quite knows how to deal with it yet. Well, I I don't really ask him, but I feel like he doesn't read it that much. Um, no, he told me maybe, he blocked most of the stuff, but, you yeah. know, he's still, I think, I worried to death about Grandma and Papa T, because, you know. Well, um, yeah, I do think, Marion's told me that they, they read it, but, um, I think they only read the top post and courier, so um, that's good that they don't read, you know, the more tabloidy kind of one. Throughout this entire case, the Murdoch camp has tried time and time again to frame Ellick as a victim. After the suicide for hire incident in September, Ellick and his attorneys wanted us to believe that he was the targeted victim of a roadside shooting. When that narrative quickly began to crumble, they switched gears and framed him as a drug addict. We haven't seen any evidence that Ellick was actually addicted to opioids, but we find it very interesting that this was the drug that the Murdoch team seems to have chosen for him. It is the one drug whose addicts America has collectively decided to look upon sympathetically. His lawyers wanted us to believe that he stole millions of dollars from his clients simply because he had a drug addiction that was out of control. His lawyers wanted us to believe that he was impecunious and his financial state was ruinous, when in reality, these jailhouse phone calls reveal the exact opposite. All along, Ellick has wanted our sympathy. Sympathy for losing his wife and son, sympathy for his drug addiction, and sympathy for his poor financial state. When he didn't get that sympathy he wanted from the public and a lot of the media, he made sure he got it from his family. In the 14 hours of tapes we listened to, we never heard the voice of a man who was truly sorry for letting down those who loved him. We didn't hear the voice of a man who recognized the damage that he's caused so many. We heard the voice of a narcissist clinging to the little control he still has left over his own family members. Being an investigative journalist is sometimes exciting, but following a trail until you reach the full story of something, meaning the truth, the 360 degrees of truth, that is, is not for the faint of heart. Because along these trails, you meet people who are hurting. You encounter complex issues that are frustrating to untangle, and you deal with unsavory characters who will suck the joy out of you if you let them. While you're on these trails, you have onlookers lining both sides, most of whom are cheering you on. Some are shouting out insults at you, and others are throwing obstacles in the way. When it came to these jail tapes, we did not have the support of our fellow South Carolina journalists, some of whom seemed to be cool with regarding the calls as private and therefore inaccessible. And I'm not bringing this up to scold those journalists, but rather to explain why their position on this was dangerous. Alec Murdoch is Alec Murdoch, 
because he could be, right? The ecosystem in the state was made for him. We all know that now. We only knew what it looked like from the outside. These tapes have given us amazing insight into the man Alec is, not the man he wants us to believe he is. The guy who is hyper aware he's being recorded, but also in an environment that makes him vulnerable by its very definition. By listening to his phone calls and sharing them with our readers at Fitz News and our listeners on this podcast, we are arming you with insight of how the powerful operate and how they will try to cling to whatever modicum of control they can as their house of cards starts to fall. With your support, we were able to catch the system off guard. The system did not expect us to ask for a listen. And here we are. We hope these calls, particularly the latest ones that we've shared, not only give you better insight into how things work for certain families in South Carolina, but also empower you in your own lives if you are dealing with narcissists or sociopaths, whether in friendships, at home, work, or even in your community. Remember, it's about control. Ellick has his narrative, and based on how our fellow journalists reacted to the jailhouse phone calls, and based on their histories of constantly accepting these pre-packaged narratives from the Murdoch team over and over again, we feel it's more important now than ever, not just to shine a light on all angles of this, but to hold up a mirror. This is the man at the center of the story. He is telling us who he is. And we are choosing to believe him on that. The Murdoch Murders Podcast is created by me, Mandy Matney, and my fiancé, David Moses. Our executive editor is Liz Farrell. Produced by Luna Shark Productions.